Welcome to Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That is me, and I'm recording this from my home in sunny Atlanta, and I'm here with Samson McCormick, who is joining me from even sunnier and probably warmer Los Angeles. Hey, Samson. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Doing so good. I'm happy that we're here celebrating. Um, I don't know if you wanted me to, to say this, but your birthday, happy birthday to you, belated birthday, and, uh, and, and surviving almost another year. What a year it has been, right? 2020 is, wow. It's been interesting. So Samson is a comedian, author, filmmaker, and actor who is no stranger to Atlanta. You've been here to perform over the years several times. Uh, From what I found, most recently in 2019, you were here at the Lesbian Bar, My Sister's Room. A few years back, you were here to co-host the Gentleman's Ball in 2017. Now you're coming back to Atlanta, at least virtually, on December 1st. December 1st for Party with Impact, a World AIDS Day fundraiser for Positive Impact Health Centers. You looking forward to being before an Atlanta audience again? Of course. Atlanta is one of the uh, best places to perform in the world. You know, as artists, we have our performing artists. We have uh, cities that are our favorites. And so my two favorites were three because I'm, I'm originally I'm from D.C. But my three favorite or two favorites outside of D.C. are um, Houston and Atlanta. And you had to set Houston first over Atlanta. I mean, really? Well, you got to save the best for last, darling. <laughs> Fair enough. So the event is for is a fundraiser for an HIV nonprofit being held on World AIDS Day. Does that make it? That give it even more special meaning to you? Yes, it definitely gives a lot of uh, special meaning because when you think about World AIDS Day, which is what the event is for, uh, a lot of people look at it as something that we have to observe in in a really somber, quiet, sad way and we don't have to do that. We can we can celebrate the the lives of the people who fought so that we can get to where we are. We can celebrate the fact that our community has been so resilient in the face of the HIV AIDS epidemic and some of the challenges that we have now and I think that it can be a celebration with laughter um, of our persistence and our ability to uh, and our resilience and our ability to uh, survive and to thrive as a community. Well, in the event, so it includes the performance by you and then also a discussion with you and actor Daryl Stevens, who uh, I have uh, been a fan of ever since Noah's Ark, which goes back quite a ways. But you appeared with him in a different direction, which you wrote, produced and directed this 2019 film, which is about a black man struggling with mental health issues. And so I was just going to ask you a little bit about that. Positive Impact, one of the many things that they do is provides mental health counseling as part of its services. So how did the the film come about? How did you want to tackle um, that topic? Ooh, Matt, you're coming with the questions now. See, See, now I'm going to have to be honest with you. So um, the a lot of us in this community, we, we deal with mental health challenges of, of various capacities. And when we hear the word mental health, when we hear um, mental illness, you know, those sorts of things, those still have a lot of stigmas attached to them. And I wanted to create a film that simply showed how various things in our lives can affect our mental health and ways that we can deal with them. And so this particular character that I portrayed was a black gay man who was having issues with employment. He was having issues with his family and he really had to learn how to stand up for himself and 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 work on his mental health, you know, reevaluate where a lot of different uh, issues came from. 
And Daryl Stevens' character uh, was his best friend and kind of talked him through it. So it was a very, it's a very intense, powerful piece. It's on YouTube. And so for anyone listening, I would highly recommend you go to YouTube and check out A Different Direction. It's a very intense film. So if you are a sensitive person who looks at uh, movies and and gets emotional, bring the tissues. So all right, here's an easier question for you. What's it like to work with Daryl? Any any tea, any dish you can give us on him? He's a really great friend of mine, and he's absolutely, and I'm not being cute, he's absolutely one of the best people to work with on the planet. That's not very gossipy. Well, he's not. I'm the gossipy one. Like, I'm the one, if you ask him, I'm the one he will tell you when we went on tour that will get drunk after our things and pee in the parking lot behind the dumpster and all that type of stuff. So he actually, he's so sweet. He's so sweet. All right. I'll, I will let you off with that. A Different Direction is not your only film work. You're an executive producer and cast member of B-Boy Blues, which is a film from Jesse Smollett that's based on James Earl Hardy's 1994 novel about black gay men. What's, what's the status of this project and, and how'd you get involved in that? Okay, well, that's a project that I'm very excited about. I also know the community is very excited about it. I became uh, involved in that project almost 10 years ago. I am the original Barry B.D. Daniels from the stage play. When I was working on the stage play, I had a conversation with James Earl Hardy, who is the author of this story, which was a uh, New York Times bestseller in the in the early 90s about why it hadn't become a film and uh, he was saying well it, it had fallen through the, the couple of times that they tried to get it made into a movie at the time well this was this particular part of the conversation came some years later um, when I did another film called a tough act to follow which is a documentary about the challenges that minorities face in entertainment and uh, he was saying that he wanted uh, to make it into a film. And so since I was producing films that he wanted me to help him do it. And so um, that's where I became an executive producer and I started strategizing. I believe last year I reached out to Jesse to do it and then um, circled back around this year and we started having the conversation and we hired him as director and then we got funding and here it is. And so what's, has it already been shot or was it impacted by the pandemic? Um, it's already been shot. So uh, we shot it last month in New York City. Is there a target date for when that's going to be released? No. Uh, I would just say keep your eyes open because it's going to move real fast. You're just going to be sitting there and one day you're just going to see the trailer for B-Boy Blues. Okay, great. And so you've been doing stand-up comedy for quite some time. Is it has it hit twenty years yet, or is it how long has it been? It's twenty years. Um, I started when I was sixteen, and um, it's been it's been quite the journey. I still really uh, it's one of the few things that I can flat out say that I love is stand-up comedy. Um, I was one of the first black queer stand-up comedians in the country that was out and got that sort of notoriety. You know, I think that we need more people from our community represented in all parts of media. Um, Lucky for me, I was able to do it through comedy and I've also been able to do it through film and, and writing books and videos and 
but comedy has been a great way to have a lot of conversations we still need to have as a as a community you know what i'm saying as an lgbtq community you know there are a lot of important conversations that comedy has allowed me to have how has it changed for you and like you mentioned you're one of the first black uh, black comedians how has that changed for you in the in the 20 years you've been doing this well, now um, I'm not I'm not the only one, <laughs> you know, when I started back in the day, um, it was really hard because people weren't hiring us. People didn't want to hear what we had to say. And so if you got up on stage, you had to be two or three times funnier than everybody else because and it's not to say that the black community is any more homophobic than any other community but i think that a lot of our the issues around sexuality in our community are in are sensationalized especially by us to stand up in front of an audience especially full of black men and you know i was doing comedy for def jam audiences and this is back in the early 2000s where they would they would beat you up if you weren't funny. Like just for not being funny, they would beat your ass. They would follow you in the parking lot and you somebody would get beat up. People would get dragged off stage. People would get booed. And to stand up there and talk about being in a relationship with another dude, being kicked out of my church, my mother not accepting me being gay. Um I would get pushed back from the audience, but I had to learn to speak to them in a way where they look past my sexuality and and really connected to the comedy. That was work that needed to be done with audiences, and that was also work that needed to be done in the industry with bookers and um, agents and things because they just would not hire you. Wow. And, and I imagine it's gotten better to some extent. They haven't given me my special on Netflix yet, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have friends like Flame Monroe, who is a transgender stand-up comedian who's, again, been in the business for about 20 years. She is on Netflix um, on, on a special called They Ready, as well as Shantae Wayans, who is a part of the Wayans family out lesbian comedian she's also on netflix and so you see that now whereas back in the day um you just there were a couple white gay comedians of course you know you had the susan westenhoffers and the bob smiths uh uh, kate clinton uh also karen williams but you never really heard anything about gay comedians and so um i think ellen and wanda help to kind of break the mold on that but you still we still have yet to see any black well not just black i'm speaking speaking from as as a black queer comedian we still have yet to see any solid mainstream queer comedian headliners who get the same spotlight as a lot of the other ones do and and you've performed all over i mean it's comedy clubs to cruise ships being the first LGBTQ comedian at a Smithsonian Museum to local LGBTQ centers uh, for not for profit gigs for nonprofit charity events like you're doing here in Atlanta with Positive Impact. It's a pretty eclectic mix. Is that typical of comedians, or is that kind of get it the difference that that gay comedians the kind of the path they have to take, or is that just pretty typical for all comedians? No, baby, that's typical of me. Okay. <laughs> I will perform at a nail salon if you put a microphone up in there. You know, it really, um, 
it comes from a place of joy really for the for the art and and really creating comedy and I'm not bullshitting you're really creating comedy that speaks to folks in a way that I really still do but especially when things were open we're getting calls to come everywhere and I don't turn things down and so I was looking at your website as I was preparing for our interview today and, and looking at your upcoming sh- upcoming shows. And there aren't many, which I imagine is probably a function of the coronavirus pandemic. But one stuck out. There is a May 1st appearance at the CCBC Resort Hotel in Palm Springs. And I'm asking this question for a friend. But isn't that a clothing optional gay resort? <clears throat> Maybe. <laughs> And again, asking for a friend, what what's happening there in May? Well, since you ask, um, I may or may not be performing with my clothes on. Is there is it a, a special event? Is there some sort of Black Gay Weekend in Palm Springs? Isn't there? Is that the same thing, or am I thinking of something different? Yes, that's a Latino Oasis, and so Latino Oasis is one of those events that I've been fortunate enough to perform for. That's for our community where we get to just get away from everything and go be men. Right, get away even from your clothes. Right. Oh yes, that's the best way to be, baby. <laughs> Uh, I have seen a lot of comedy shows over in my years, but I have never seen one at a at a gay resort. So that that might be an interesting experience. Well, you know, Matt, um, the the great thing about being a queer comedian is that we do get to um, perform some places other comedians don't get to, and. Um, a lot of women who perform for gay audiences say the same thing. That was one of the great things about performing for cruise ships. I used to uh, headline Atlantis, which is an all-gay cruise, and they bring you into this big auditorium, and they they do this speech before you leave, so they're like... um, there, there are four thousand gay men on boat on board, and five ladies, and and I go find those five ladies because they're usually lesbians, and I know if that boat goes down and I'm with those lesbians, I'm gonna live, okay? Because you know why them gay men are drinking the um, mimosas and stuff that they be serving. You know them lesbians be looking for those exit maps. So I'm black, and. We don't do cruise ships or we don't do airplanes for a long time. So, you know, it's water now. So I need to be safe. (laughs) I'm going to tell you this right quick. So on Atlantis, there was this on the top deck. Don't tell nobody I'm telling y'all this. There was this deck up top and it was called the dick deck. It's called a dick deck. And it's all the way up top and about 100 dudes are up there butterball naked at midnight. And they are up there getting down. I have never seen anything like this in my life. And I thought, what a great place to come do comedy. <laughs> and and that's the point you were like, you know what? I need to do that. I need to book that show in Palm Springs at that resort. <laughs> uh, was I? I think I was booked for it before because I've been performing a long time. But it was just stuff that I allowed myself to um, be exposed to. Because I grew up in church, and I talk about that all the time. So, I mean, I would perform, but I also treated it like it used to, you know, choir rehearsal. I would go perform, and I would go back to my room and eat me a sandwich and watch TV. And I had a friend who said, 
it's ridiculous that you get to go to all these different places around the world and you just perform and go to your room. Are you crazy? <laughs> so I started coming out and, and really um, having these experiences like CCBC and like um, the the Dick Deck. And, and I also performed at a lot of nudist colonies and stuff like that. I performed at this place in Virginia. I forgot what part of Virginia it's in, but it was called the White Tail Resort. These are 70 plus year old people and everybody's butterball naked, got their asses directly on the seat. And <laughs> having these opportunities really helped me to unlearn a lot of stuff that I learned in church, you know, um, that more of us really, we just need to loosen up and have fun. You know, people live different lives and, you know, we all get different things from however we do what we do. And I think if people learn how to respect each other for that, we would live in a world where we appreciated our differences. Speaking of church, in June, you released Church Boy, a comedy special recorded at D.C. Comedy Loft in Washington, D.C., just before the coronavirus lockdown. I watched it as I prepared for our interview, and it covers a lot of territory. There's Twinks, the Black Church, Black Barbershop, Whole Foods, and it includes my new favorite phrase, pop an edible and pray. What was the motivation behind creating Church Boy? Uh, the motivation behind creating Church Boy uh, mostly was that I hadn't recorded a special in seven years. And um, it was time for a new one. And I didn't know that it was about to be locked down. So I'm glad that I did record it. It was just one of those projects where I was like, it was very, it was, there wasn't a, a special reason that I did it. It was just, um, I created that special for very practical reasons. A lot of people wanted me to do a new comedy special. And I was like, eh, I don't really have a reason, but it hasn't been seven years. So I just put it out uh, because people wanted me to put it out. I'm still at heart, still very much so a church boy, even though I have become a heathen over the years. I still I, I've, I've acquired very worldly ways, you know, at the core, you know, being a church boy. And, and the beautiful thing about that special is that even though I talked about experiences in the black church, even though I talked about experiences in the black barbershop and in black families. One of the great things about being from the South is that the way I frame my content is that it, it relates to everybody because there's a certain warmth that comes from having a Southern upbringing or being from the South. And anybody can listen to my comedy and, and feel um, seen and feel like they have a family member, feel like there's a safe place in the world. And I think, you know, different art does different things. And I think that my comedy, in addition to being hilarious, some of the best comedy you'll ever hear in your life. In addition to that, I think that it gives people in the world um, shelter. A lot of people come to my shows who uh, are like me. They don't necessarily have the the closest family, you know, and so when you're in a world where you feel like nobody has your back, you want you want somewhere to go where where you feel plugged in. And I think the, my, a lot of my following are people who who are underdogs and people who feel forgotten and left out and overlooked. My art, my comedy, my films give a voice to those people. And I think it's one of the reasons why I get to do shows like I do with um, positive impact is because 
Yes, I'm an artist. Yes, I love all the great things that comes with that. But I also do it to fight for people who've had a lot of experiences that I've had who may not have the strength to fight some of the battles that I have to fight to do what I do. During Church Boy, you are flanked by a shirtless, muscular guy on each side of you throughout the show. So what is that about? Because everybody like a little eye candy. And, you know, the same way you go to your family gatherings and grandma sneaks you that little piece of cake. <laughs> well, I sneak my audience. I sneak them. I sneak them a little a little candy. You know, everybody likes a little something nice to look at. You grew up in a religious home. We've talked about that a little bit. Lots of LGBTQ people struggle to reconcile their faith with being queer. The struggle is often deeper for people of color raised in the black church. Religion is something, as we've talked about, is in your comedy act. How have you reconciled religion and, and being gay and are able to talk about it and include it in your comedy? Through suffering. And, and a lot of people are afraid to wrestle with it and suffer with it. You know, we, we are taught that suffering is a bad thing because you do suffer when you have to question things about yourself and things like that. And, and a part of the strength that you acquire to get to a place where you're ex- where you accept yourself is to realize, you know, a lot of people may le- abandon you. I've been abandoned before but thankfully I'm I'm surrounded by people now who genuinely have my back and that's a, a a real blessing but you know I think a lot of people are afraid and we hold on to people that we want to love us who just can't love us as we are or appreciate us or whatever word I'm not big on the love word but you know you have to get to a point where um you're okay with you and really owning the fact and once you experience it from at least one person I think you know for me my one person was my best friend uh, who who always fought for me and who always you know I could call and tell him you know I could call and tell him I I, I accidentally hurt somebody accidentally took somebody out he'd be like okay well where we need to bury him at <laughs> you know and not really but you know when you when you experience um, appreciation like that, when you when you come across somebody who's able to accept you flaws and all, you go, well, if this is a human being who can do this, I don't think that a, a being that exists that's supposed to be all-knowing and all-powerful would, would make any mistakes in how I'm created and would limit any of the the love or the the good things that I do deserve simply for being here, you know, as I am and and attempting to do my best and, and be that. I think in a lot of families that happens and where you'll see somebody who's gay or lesbian or trans or queer and they will do all the things that a decent person would do. But because of how they love, they they get thrown away by their families for somebody who molests children. You you sleep with these men and you sleep with these other men or you sleep with these other women. And that's disgusting. But, you know, Uncle Harold is in there molesting kids and he's sitting at the head of the table eating the biggest piece of turkey. What's that about? And and even within our own LGBTQ community, we're pretty good at throwing people aside, whether it's 
because they're trans or whether it's because they're black. Well, we 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 do it the worst, and you would think that because we know what that is, especially in the gay community, especially because you know um, we go through so much, but we throw each other away because somebody's old. Especially, we don't talk enough about gay senior citizens we don't that's not even a conversation how often do you hear that conversation never they come to a lot of my shows and i talk to them and i'm not gonna lie it's not something that i had really thought about until they had come to my shows and um i started having conversations with some of the things that they go through as elders you know, we throw them away. We throw the trans community away. We throw feminine men away. We throw people who are overweight away. And I realize that in, in this world that we live in, there's nothing we can do about that because that's just the world. But I think that we can create spaces where people can come and feel accepted and they can come and be able to be, all of us can be ourselves. And, you know, that's the place that I create through my comedy and through my art and and I like to um, connect with people who, who have that same vision. Whether we talk enough about it or not, which we don't, we also throw a lot of people away from being HIV positive in our community. There are a lot of stories you hear about people who either they're afraid to tell the truth about their status because we don't create a space for them to be able to do that or um, I know a lot of men who, you know, I met in passing or and things like that. And I, I get a lot of great, um, I interact with a lot of great people in our community who will say, oh, well, they were dating someone and they told them that they were HIV positive and they got beat up or, you know, they got ghosted or something like that. And that's even in 2020 with all the education, with all the Discovery and all the prep and all those other things, it's still highly stigmatized. We still say they're not clean. They're sick. We use those sorts of things. So we, we got a lot of work we got to do. 2020, what a year. Racial justice movement, pandemic, politics and economy on the brink. 2020, there just seems to be so much less humor because everything seems to be so much more real and raw. How do you find humor in the events of today and and create humor in this environment? Um, having sex and eating chocolate cake. I'm with you on both of them. No, I really, I really think that I find I well, and I talk about this all the time, and it's okay if we go over the way that I find humor and all this stuff is acknowledging it as our reality. I think that's the that's the number one thing that you can do is acknowledge the fact that it's real. It only becomes it it, it becomes something that we can't laugh at when we don't acknowledge it, which is. We live in a society now because of political correctness. Rather than talk about issues, we have this word called cancel. And we cancel and we sweep stuff up under the rug. Whereas I miss the 80s and 90s when we could make fat jokes, when we could, you know, I, I don't believe in rape jokes unless it's you and it's your story and you found the humor in it that you can, you know, make the joke out of it. But, you know, there was a time where we could laugh about the realities of things. And that's something that we're losing. And I think because I'm not politically correct, because I'm able to talk about stuff and tell the truth about things, that allows me to keep my sense of humor. 
I come from a generation where we did that. And I think, Matt, you remember this, too, where we we and I'm from D.C., so we called it joning in D.C., but some people call it roasting. Some people call it snapping. Some people call it capping when you go, oh, well, your mama's so fat. She. uh she sat on a rainbow and made Skittles or your mama's so dumb she got hit by a parked car. And I tell this to people all the time, we used humor growing up to deal with these things that we didn't have any control over because um, we knew we had to deal with them some type of way. And so to acknowledge it as truth and be able to laugh at it takes the power away from it from other people to be able to hurt you with it. And so these days now, even if you're making a joke about yourself, people go, oh, that's traumatizing. You need to go to therapy. But there are a lot of people who go to therapy and they come out worse than they were before they went up in there. And I know what you're saying about political correctness, but that was also a time when it was acceptable to make anti-gay jokes and just mock people. So how do you. Is there a line to draw over what's what's acceptable today and what's not? Um, the reality is that people are still going. People still make anti-gay jokes. I mean, hello, have you not seen? I don't like to get political, but have you not seen our country over the last four years? It's nothing new. It didn't go anywhere. The the thing with it now is people think that things are new. None of this stuff is new. The only difference is that now we are able to amplify the reality of it with media whenever we whenever we want to. You know, whenever we decide to sensationalize the reality, we can now take media and go, oh, yeah, this is happening. But it's only happening because we've placed emphasis on it for this one moment, even though. You know, for instance, we might not be in the street marching for Black Lives Matter. I'm pretty sure two or three black men got killed by police last night. But we'll never know their names because they didn't get the media attention. You know, so it's like certain things get that attention and we over sensationalize it. And then rather than deal with it, and I think as a society, we no longer have the self-esteem to deal with it. We just go, oh, well, we'll, we'll just cancel this over here because people are still the reality is even though people may not uh, say you didn't, they, they can no longer say you didn't get this job for being gay. The fact that you go in and you're qualified and don't get it and you kind of tick off boxes in your head is still going to linger in the back of your head. I would much rather a person come right out and tell me like they used to. Because the reality is people are still going to be people. People are still going to have opinions. And I think that people should have the freedom to have those opinions. And we need to just deal with the reality of, of course, in, in, in some sort of balance. You know, there does need to be a certain balance in there somewhere. But I want to know who people are. If you're racist, I'm the type. I'm not going to get upset and everything. I'm going to say, okay, well, why do you think like that? And I realize people don't have the capacity to do that. Everybody doesn't have the capacity to do that. But I just think that there was a certain character, a depth to character and appreciation for humanity that we really had when people could be openly racist. They could be openly homophobic. It's like, I don't know, it's just a certain respect that was in society that does not exist anymore. Like we try to act like stuff doesn't exist and it, I don't know, it's taken something away from us. 
I've interviewed Ian Abram, Atlanta-based gay comedian, and we've talked before about performing in front of gay audiences, and and he says that they can make for a tougher audience because every gay guy thinks he's the funniest person in the room. What's your take on gay audiences? Are do you are they different to you? Is your material different uh, for a gay audience versus a non-gay audience? I wouldn't say they're tougher. I would say you have to approach them differently. I used to want more support from especially gay men because earlier in my career, I tailored a lot of my stuff to the gay community. There is that thing in there, but I'm not, you know, where where gay men kind of look at you like, okay, you're up there. What's so special about you? Until Oprah says it's okay to laugh at you or until Ellen says it's okay to laugh at you or something like that. But I think that really just goes back to what I was saying earlier about being gay or being black or whatever, any of those things. It's just you have a different standard held up to you. The gay audiences kind of come in. I, now, lesbians, I enjoy a lesbian audience. But with gay men, gay men, we're so open, I think, about things in some ways. We hear so much and see so much that nothing really shocks us. So there's this certain factor where it's a certain factor that's missing when you're in front of a gay audience if they come in there with their guards up. Which, not to get too deep, but gay gay men, we 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 keep our guard up around each other anyway, especially in dating. But they, a lot of them, will come in there with that up in that audience. I've been in front of gay audiences where they did not, and it's been a great time. So if you can get an audience who is mostly gay men to come in and they come in to have a good time, it's great. But if they come in with their guards up, like. For instance, um, if I'm performing at a an HRC dinner, okay, if they come in, you know, very uptight and stuff like that, they're gonna. If you're a gay man, it's like they treat you. It's a different treatment you get unless you look real good. But then you know they're not laughing at you because you're funny. They're laughing at you because they want to lick your butt. But isn't an HRC dinner the epitome of an uptight crowd? Surprisingly, though, those sorts of gay men love me. Rich, rich gay white men, they love me. I'm like, um, okay, well, if y'all like me so much, I need for one of y'all to come on here and scoop me up now. I'm kidding. But no, it's I've never had a problem with um, glad audiences, HRC. Those actually, because my comedy is so intelligent and so polished, they actually like it, and I think they're kind of shocked because I'm like this young, good-looking black dude, and I have the cadence of like a somebody who really probably could run a church or something. And I have that cadence when I'm performing, even though it's very like worldly and kind of wild. It still has like that. It's a certain authority that it has, and I think they like seeing that. I think that is where I get to get those other points from, where they listen to me and stuff like that. Whereas if I go to somewhere in Dallas or somewhere in um, Alabama, you know, like one of those late night back alley gay clubs where they come in and, you know, there's 50 people standing around drinking three dollar drinks. I might have a harder time with that audience because 
it depends, but I'm up there and, and they're like, oh, well, he must think he's better than us. It's like one of those things you got to just break them down and let them know, look, bitch, we all are in here. We have the same experience. Don't get cute. So a dick deck on an Atlanta ship falls somewhere between Dallas and a $3 well drink bar in Alabama and an HRC dinner? That's where those two worlds collide. <laughs> Yeah, is 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 there on that deck? My last question for you, Samson. Where can people find you, follow you, and catch up on your comedy? The one of the best things people can do, and I'm going to do a better job at, at updating it more often. I update the stories every day. Is my Instagram. So on Instagram, uh, Samson McCormick. S A M P S O N M C C O R M I C K. Also on. Um, YouTube, if you just go on YouTube and type in Samson McCormick, I have over a decade's worth of content on there. Where else I am? I'm everywhere. You know, it's I do virtual shows. I'm uh, also in addition to B-Boy Blues, I um, am also working on another new project that will be out early next year that people are going to absolutely love. So I'm excited about it. Samson, thanks for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you December 1st during Party with Impact, which is a fundraiser for Positive Impact Health Centers. People can find more information and get tickets at positiveimpacthealthcenters.org. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q to keep up with new episodes and follow us at theqatl.com. See you soon with a new episode. Bye.